Okay, uh, tonight we're going to cover Matthew chapter 3, mainly talking about the ministry of John the Baptist. And I have to say it's a fascinating chapter. This is an amazing man that we see here. John the Baptist, and then of course his baptism of Jesus towards the end of the chapter. So let's begin here, continuing on in the Gospel of Matthew, starting at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew here introduces us to one of the most fascinating persons of the New Testament. This was the John who was born to Zacharias and Elizabeth, his mother and father, who had what you would call a miraculous conception. His mother and father were past the age of bearing children, and they were barren before the years. In the years that they could bear children, they didn't have any, and now they were past the years of bearing children. And yet, um, his father, Zacharias, was given this amazing visitation from an angel when he was in the temple serving God in the the course of a priestly duty that he was selected to perform. And as he did this, uh, the angel Gabriel came to him and told him that he would bear a son, that he would have a son, his wife would bear it, of course. And it's an amazing, wonderful story there uh, in Luke chapter 1. But at the very beginning there, at the very beginning when his father Zacharias received this angelic announcement in the temple, it was told to him, that his son, his name would be John, and that he would be a forerunner to the Messiah. So before John the Baptist, not only before he was born, before he was even conceived in the womb of Elizabeth, who happened to be the cousin, of course, of Mary, uh, he was called to this work of being the forerunner of the Messiah. And so now John the Baptist is all grown up, and he's ministering, in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's message was in one way a radical call to repentance. Now that's a very important biblical word. Some people think that repentance is mostly about feelings, especially about feeling sorry for your sin. If you're repentant, you feel sorry about your sin. Now, it's wonderful to feel sorry about your sin. I'm, I'm in favor of people feeling sorry about their sin. But that's not what the word repent means, at least not this ancient Greek word metanoia that's translated repent in our Bibles. That ancient Greek word isn't a feelings word. It's an action word. Here, John tells his listeners to make a change of mind and action, not merely to feel sorry for what they've done. Repentance speaks of a change of direction in your thinking and in your actions, not merely a sorrow in a person's heart. Now, this call to repentance is important, and it can't be neglected. It's entirely accurate to say that repentance is the first word of the gospel. What was the first word in the message that John the Baptist preached? Repent. I'm not asking you to turn there. We'll see it next week. We're in uh, Matthew chapter 4. But repent was the first word of Jesus' message when he preached all around Galilee. And when Jesus sent out the disciples, 
to, to do a preaching ministry all around the Galilee area without him, they went out and preaching that people should repent. And when Jesus rose from the dead and gave instructions to his disciples about what they should do, he told them to go out and preach that people should repent. And then in Acts chapter 2, when Peter gave what you might call the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost, what did he tell his listeners to do? What was the first thing he told them to actually do was repent. And then again, Acts chapter 26 tells us that the Apostle Paul, throughout his ministry, the first word of his message was again, repent. Over and over again, we're told to repent. Now, it's a valid question. Is repentance something that we must do before we can come to God? Do you understand what I'm saying by that? You want to come to God, but you can't come to God unless you repent first. I would say that to describe repentance that way is somewhat inaccurate. Repentance does not describe something you have to do before you come to God. It describes what coming to God is like. If you're in New York and I tell you to come to Los Angeles, I really don't need to say, leave New York and come to Los Angeles, right? Because you can't come to Los Angeles without leaving New York if you're starting in New York. To come to Los Angeles is to leave New York. And if I haven't left New York, I certainly haven't come to Los Angeles or I haven't come one bit closer to Los Angeles. We can't come to the kingdom of heaven unless we leave our sin and our self-life, unless we change the way we think and the way that we act. One other thing about repentance that we need to remind ourselves of, the Bible tells us that repentance is a gift of God. In other words, we don't decide upon our own self, upon our own initiative, upon our own strength, upon our own desire, that one day we're just going to repent. God gives us what we might call the gift of repentance. And I'll tell you right now that there's a lot of different ideas among different theologians and different Bible scholars about how that actually works. There are some people who believe that God gives individuals the ability to repent and then it's up to them whether or not they actually do it. There's other people who believe that God just works in somebody and virtually forces them to repent. That's putting it too strong. I'm, I'm sort of saying it too strongly just for sort of dramatic effect, but but that repentance is just sort of bestowed or put upon a person. I'm not going to get into those theological distinctions. I'm just saying it's very important for people to know this. You cannot come to Jesus without repenting of your sins. Repentance is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you one more thing, just since we're on the subject of repentance. It's the first word of the gospel. It's very important. It cannot be neglected. But repentance is also something for the church today. Sometimes Christians get into the habit of thinking that repentance is for the unconverted. All right? And then they repent and they come to Jesus Christ. And great, I've done repenting. A fascinating exercise is to read through the seven letters that Jesus Christ dictated to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. How many of those seven churches did Jesus tell to repent when he spoke to them? Five of the seven. So I'm not saying that every single Christian needs to practice repentance all the time in their Christian life. Maybe just five out of every seven 
need to be concerned with it. Of course, I'm joking just a little bit with that. I think it's something we have to be aware of all the time, right? We have to constantly make sure that our thinking, our actions are oriented towards Jesus Christ and towards his word and not against them. And if they're not, we have to repent and turn ourselves towards that. Now, why repent? Look at what John says here. Preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John wanted people to know that the kingdom of heaven was near. It was as close as your hand. Your hand isn't very far away from you, is it? You might say it's, it's right there with you. It wasn't as distant or as dreamy as people had imagined. And you can just see what people would normally think that, right? Oh, the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's out there somewhere. Maybe someday it'll come to us. Maybe someday it'll be, but it's just this, this sort of fantasy, just sort of this dream off in the distance. And John says, no, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is why John was so urgent in his call to repentance. If the kingdom of heaven is at hand, when do you have to get ready? Now. Don't wait. Get ready now. You see, I want you to understand this. John's main message was not... You're a sinner, you need to repent. Did you notice that? John's main message was, Messiah the King is coming. And therefore, because the King is coming, you better get ready for him. And what do we call getting ready for the coming of the King? We call it repentance. You see, the call to repentance was a response to the news that the King and his kingdom were coming. Indeed, they were already here in one sense. Now, I want you to notice a phrase that we see there in verse 2. The kingdom of heaven. There are some people who make a large distinction between the idea of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Because you will find that very often in Matthew's gospel, he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven where the other synoptic Gospels, namely Mark and Luke, they tend to use the phrase kingdom of God more. Is there a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? I have to tell you, I don't think that there's a difference at all. Now, some dispensationalists see a big difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. The the idea is, or their idea, I should say, is that the kingdom of God is a now-present spiritual kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven refers to the coming millennial earth in all of its splendor. I think a much better explanation of the reason why Matthew uses mostly the phrase kingdom of heaven and why Mark and Luke mostly use the phrase kingdom of God, that it's a much better explanation to say that Matthew was trying to avoid offending his Jewish readers because it was very common in that day for godly, pious, religious Jewish people to never refer to God directly. They wouldn't say, I swear by God. They would say, I swear by heaven or I swear by his throne. They would use some indirect reference to God instead of directly referring to him. I believe that that's all Matthew is doing in this particular case. Now, going on here, verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Matthew used this passage from Isaiah chapter 40, this great passage, prepare the way of the Lord to identify John the Baptist as the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. Now, being attentive readers of the scripture, we already knew that Matthew was the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah because the angel Gabriel told Zacharias this when he announced that John would be born to the previously barren couple of Zacharias and Elizabeth. But this was his role. And in this role, John's purpose was to prepare hearts for the Messiah, to bring an awareness of sin among the Jewish people so that they could receive the salvation from sin that's offered by the Messiah. And again, that's very important, right? You're not going to receive the offer of salvation from the Messiah unless you have a sense that you need this salvation. And so that's exactly what John was doing. He was fulfilling this role of preparing the way for the Messiah. That's kind of interesting. In John chapter 1, verse 23, John the Baptist uses this very same passage from the book of Isaiah to identify himself. He says, I'm the guy crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the ways of the Lord. So in John, he uses it of himself in Matthew, Matthew is polite enough to give it to him in the third person. Well, and what does he say he's there to do? Notice it says there, make his paths straight. The passage that Matthew quotes from, again, it's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, has in mind building up a great road for the arrival of a majestic king. And the idea is to fill in the holes to knock down the hills that are in the way. You know, one of the luxuries we have in the modern world that I think we just can't appreciate because we take it for granted, it's not anything special to us, is roads. You know, in the ancient world, a road was a remarkable technology. It was a remarkable thing to have a good road. And many hundreds of years after the time of Isaiah... It would be in the time of John the Baptist. The Romans did one of their greatest engineering accomplishments by building excellent roads all over the Roman Empire. By the way, those roads were so good that even though they were not well maintained, oftentimes they were the best roads in the medieval world and weren't topped by anything built in the Middle Ages. For the most part, that was true. Of course, not everywhere. But in the most part, Roman roads continue to be the best existing roads in the Middle Ages. But the idea of making a road, of you fill in the areas that need to be filled in, you knock away the things that need to be walked away, and you have a straight, smooth path leading somewhere, that was something wonderful. Now, oftentimes, the initiative to build a road would be a royal visit. The king is going to visit this and such village over there. Let's make a great road for the king to travel upon. And they'd say, prepare the way for the king. Build a great road. And again, this was the idea. 
do this. This is what John was doing spiritually. The idea of preparing the way of the Lord is a word picture because the real preparation takes place where? In our hearts. But building a road is very much like the preparation God has to do in our hearts. Building a road's expensive, and it can cost a lot to have God change your heart the right way. They both have to deal with many different problems, many different environments, and they both take an expert engineer. That's how God works in our heart to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. You see, Jesus was the coming Messiah and King, and John the Baptist was the one crying in the wilderness. And through this message of repentance, he worked to prepare the way of the Lord. We often fail to appreciate how important it is to prepare the work of the Lord. Anytime God does a great work, it's because there's been great preparation. You know, sometimes that's how we should pray. We pray all the time, Lord, do a great work, do a great work, do a great work. And it's good for us to pray that. But it's also, also all right for us to pray, Lord, prepare your work. Prepare your work. Lay the foundation for it. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, men's hearts were like a wilderness where there was no way. But as loyal subjects throw up roads through the approach of their beloved princes, so were men to welcome the Lord with their hearts made right and ready to receive him. So he was preparing the way of the Lord. Now, by the way, I just need to add one thing here. In the Matthew, excuse me, in the Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 quotation that Matthew gives here, the way of who is being prepared? The way of the Lord, Yahweh, right? Here, whose way is being prepared? The way of the Messiah of Jesus Christ. Can't you see that Matthew here, in a subtle but very powerful way, is telling us Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Prepare the way to the Lord. Prepare the way of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's the same thing in Matthew's mind. And who was called to do this work? Well, just look at this man, John the Baptist. It says there that he was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt, right there in verse 4. In his personality and in his ministry, John the Baptist was patterned after that very bold prophet of the Old Testament, Elijah. If you're curious, it's 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 that tells us that this is the way that Elijah dressed. And what did Elijah do? Well, one of the things he did was he fearlessly called Israel to repentance. And we can say this, both Elijah and John the Baptist had very hard ministries where they wore rough clothes and they ate, you know, very simple, just sort of Spartan warrior kind of food. And they condemned the physical and the spiritual, the physical idolatry, the spiritual softness of their times. You know, in the spirit of today's age, John's ministry would have been very different. Could you imagine a man like John the Baptist doing his ministry today? Well, he wouldn't start in the wilderness, he wouldn't dress strange. He wouldn't preach such a straightforward uh, repentance message. He, he would use marketing surveys and focus groups to hone his message and presentation. But John wasn't motivated by the spirit of today's age. He was motivated by the spirit of God. And this is what I want you to understand as well. John the Baptist was not trying to be like Elijah. Can you imagine John the Baptist? fitting himself with his, you know, camel hair 
you know, clothing, you know, and looking at himself in the mirror, trying to strike that Elijah pose, you know, ah, you know, angry, something like that. No, he's not a man pretending to be Elijah or trying to be like Elijah. No, no. You see, that wasn't his public image that he just put on. John knew the words that were spoken to his father, Zacharias, before John was even born. This is what it says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 17. It says, He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience of the to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's in Luke chapter 1, verse 17. This is simply who John the Baptist was. And someone might say that that was his calling even before he was created in the womb. And so this was his ministry. You can just picture in your mind this strange, loud, bold man. I'm telling you, if John the Baptist was in our world today, we would think he was crazy. You would wonder... Who is that weird man screaming out in the desert, shouting at people to repent, telling them to do what? Well, it's going to tell you right here in verses 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. What did John do? He baptized. Now, this rough man with this rough message, with this radical call to repentance, and with this practice of the ceremony of baptism, he attracted a huge following. Did you see what it said there in verse 5? I'm not making this up. All Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan. John's ministry met with wonderful response. There were many people who recognized their own sinfulness, their need to get ready for the Messiah, and they were willing to do something about it. You see, under the blessing of God, John's message of repentance and call to prepare the Messiah, it bore a lot of fruit. And this is why I want you to understand it's so radical. When he called people to repent and confess their sins and be baptized... Did the Jewish people have a ceremony of baptism in John's day? Yes, they did. Now, I need to make a careful distinction here. They had many ceremonial washings, right? That was not unusual. There were a lot of ceremonial washings among the Jewish people. But baptism wasn't like that. They had a ceremony of baptism, but who would it be applied to? It would be applied to a Gentile who wanted to become a Jewish proselyte. Do you understand what it meant for these Jewish people to submit to the practice of baptism? They essentially said, I'm as bad as a Gentile. And that was a big thing for them to say in that culture. And not only that, what was curious about the Jewish practice of baptism for Gentile proselytes is that it was self-administered. Nobody baptized you, right? You baptized yourself. You'd go down to this place of ceremonial washing or a river or whatever, and you would baptize yourself. Here, you have to submit to John's baptism. He's going to put you under. He's going to put you below the water. He is going to baptize you. That's why they call him the baptizer. That's why he got this name, John the Baptist. And his preaching created such a widespread revival movement, and there was such a significant group, 
that this was a big following he had. Notice what it says. It says that all Judea and all the region around Jordan went out to him. Now, please understand the term all here used twice. It's repeated and it shows us that often in scripture, some, or I shouldn't say often, let's say sometimes, let's be a little more conservative in this. Sometimes in scripture, when it uses the expression all, it doesn't mean literally all. Right. Nobody here seriously regards that every single citizen of Jerusalem went out to John the Baptist and was baptized. Every single individual in Judea. There are times when the term all is simply used for a great multitude. Why would it use that? Well, it's using it somewhat in a metaphorical sense. But I'll tell you, if you were up on a hill and looking down upon this scene of John's baptism, and if you saw the thousands of people there flocking to hear John and submitting to this rite of baptism, you saw thousands of people there, what would you say? You'd say, all Jerusalem and Judea is here. And, and you wouldn't literally be correct, but you would be in the sense of it, wouldn't you? It was an amazing response. Do you know how great the response was? I'll give you two examples of how great the response was. First of all, Josephus, this ancient Jewish historian, he actually tells us more about John the Baptist than he does about Jesus. John the Baptist was a big man back then in historical terms. Second thing, the influence of John the Baptist is seen decades after his ministry began. When Paul comes and, and Apollos and some of the other, they're talking to the people in the church at Ephesus and talking to them about the filling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What do they say? They say, well, we only know the baptism of John. There were followers of John the Baptist that continued for decades after Jesus finished his work and ascended to heaven. It was a remarkable, enduring, and long-lasting ministry that John the Baptist had. And so that's what they did. They were baptized by him. John offered this ceremonial washing that, that was a confession of sin and that did something to demonstrate repentance. And before we can gain the kingdom of heaven, as we're going to find out in a couple of weeks in, in this first beatitude, we have to recognize our poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said. Well, that was an awareness of sin that Jesus will speak about when we get to the Sermon on the Mount in a few weeks. And this awareness of sin was the foundation not only of John's great work, which I would call, in historical terms, a revival or a spiritual awakening, but it's been the foundation for subsequent revivals and spiritual awakenings afterwards. Baptism simply means to immerse or overwhelm. That's what the word means. If you were to take this pen and baptize it, according to the terminology of the ancient Greek, you would take this pen and you would overwhelm it or you would submerge it in water. That's it. That's what it means. If you took a little bit of water out and sprinkled the pen with it, you would not be baptizing it because you did not immerse it, you did not overwhelm it. And sometimes the Bible uses the term baptize in a completely metaphorical sense. Sometimes Jesus talks about being baptized into sufferings, right? Being immersed into sufferings, being overwhelmed by suffering, not being sprinkled with sufferings. I'm just trying to make the point here. 
If you want to talk about what John's baptism was and what baptism is, you're talking about somebody being submerged under the water, not sprinkled. I'm just trying to give you the straight historical truth here. The church did not start sprinkling people until it started baptizing babies. That's when it started sprinkling or just pouring water on the head because it didn't want to put babies all the way under the water. That's the only reason the church started sprinkling or pouring water on. Up until that, they baptized. They put people completely under. And honestly, that's how I think baptism should be. Um, I remember baptizing a guy once, an older man. Um, he was actually saved because some people from our church were doing ministry at an old people's home. And they were just ministering to the people, and they prayed with the guy, and they led him to the Lord, and his family was thrilled. His family had been praying for this guy for years and years and years. And he was an old guy, and they finally, he finally gave his life to the Lord. Well, he wanted to be baptized. And uh, th- for some reason, they wouldn't let him do this at the old people's home. And so we went to the, the home of one of the guys who led this guy to Christ. And he had like a jacuzzi or a hot tub in the back. And we were going to go in there, and I was going to do the baptism. And so here I am. I'm going to baptize this, well, this frankly frail old man. And I'm going to baptize him. Look at this old guy. And I go, I don't want this guy to like have a heart attack or a seizure or something like that. I'm not going to put him under all the way. And so I lowered him down in the water and I left just kind of the circle of the top of his face out. You know, just not all the way. I mean, almost all the way, right? And then I brought him all up, and his family were all crying. Like, oh, it's so wonderful. He's got baptized. Well, the guy wasn't crying. The guy turned to me, and he said, you didn't put me all the way under. And I look, and I go, well, you know, I, I didn't want to say I was afraid to. I didn't want you to have a heart attack or something. So I just said, let's do it again. And we did. We put the guy under all the way, and he was properly baptized. Well, listen, that's what baptism is. It's being oral. Now, listen. I don't want to be legalistic about this, right? Sometimes people say, well, what if you were on a desert island? Well, if you were on an island, there'd be lots of water around. Um, you were in the middle of the Sahara Desert, and there was no water, and yet somebody got saved, and they wanted to be baptized. And then, could you, well, yes. In the middle of the Sahara Desert, you can baptize somebody by sprinkling. Okay, fine. We don't want to be legalistic about this, right? But I don't think you can deny that just in normal terminology, in normal speaking, to be baptized means to be immersed, to be put under the water. Now, as I said before, baptism was practiced in the Jewish community already in the form of this ceremonial immersion practiced from Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. For a Jew in John's day to submit to baptism was essentially to say, I confess that I am as far away from God as a Gentile and I need to get right with him. And that was a real work of the Holy Spirit. And so John's baptism was something special. It was something radical. And John did it. And I want you to notice the last phrase there in verse 6. And confessing their sins. This was another important aspect, and it's a partner to the call to repentance. These Jewish people were very serious about getting right with God. They repented, they were baptized, and the the picture seems to be here 
is that John would take them in the water and they would be baptized as they were confessing their sins. In other words, they'd go down the water, they would confess their sins, and John would baptize them. That seems to be the pattern of it. And so, wow, that's a big deal. And the fact that there was such a wide response shows what a remarkable work of the Holy Spirit it was. Now, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Remarkable, huh? Isn't it remarkable how John really didn't care about pleasing people? He's just one of these men who wouldn't really belong in our age. Could you imagine this guy's the pastor of your church? I mean, shouting at people as soon as they come in. Who who told you to come here? Are are you trying to flee the wrath to come? Oh, even you, are you? Well, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think you're serious about repentance. And on and on and on. This was the spirit of John the Baptist. Now, who did he say this to? Verse 7 tells us, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. This is our introduction in the Gospel of Matthew to these two important groups, Pharisees and Sadducees. They were very important groups, Powerful groups, but they were very different and often in conflict with one another. Together, they represented the leadership of Judaism. Some interesting things about the Pharisees. I I like what Matthew Poole, the commentator, said about them. He pointed out four things about the Pharisees. First of all, they believed that a person was made righteous by keeping the law, and they believed that they themselves were righteous that way, right? Paul was a Pharisee, or maybe I should say Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, right? And he was absolutely convinced of his own righteousness. Absolutely convinced. If you were to go to Pharisee Saul of Tarsus and say, you know, I don't think you're righteous by keeping the law, he would think you're crazy. Well, of course I'm righteous by keeping the law. Here's the laws, I do them. What are you saying I'm not righteous by keeping the law? He would be absolutely convinced of it. Secondly, they often misinterpreted the law. We're going to find out a lot more of that when we get into the Sermon on the Mount in just a few weeks. Third, they held many traditions to be of equal authority with the law. This was a big deal among the Pharisees. The Pharisees honestly believed that many of their traditions were of equal weight, of equal authority. And then fourthly, they were often hypocrites in their practice. They would neglect the core and the spirit of the law Instead, just observing certain outward acts of observance. You could call the Pharisees, you know, precise legal observers, people who observed the law precisely. They they were, I like what one commentator says, he says they were virtuosi in religion. 
how they call somebody a virtuoso because they play a, a instrument beautiful. That's how the Pharisees played religion. Then again, of the Sadducees, some people would say, they were the men of affairs, men of business, men of wisdom, men of education, men of the priestly class. They were the men in the fine suits and the business educations and the movers and the shakers and the men of power. And so you had these two aspects. They came out to see what John was doing. And what did John say? So glad you're here. I've got the top religious guys and I've got the top power guys here. Beautiful. I'm glad you've come to our church service today. No, he starts screaming at them. Get out of here. Who told you to come? Do you really want to repent or not? He says, brood of vipers. Now that's kind of poetic when you put it in that sort of King James's English. Brood of vipers, how about this? You bunch of snakes. That's what he's calling them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John accused these leaders of wanting to appear anxious for the Messiah, but of not truly repenting and preparing their hearts. Therefore, John demanded from them fruits worthy of repentance. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees often conducted their religious works in a very ostentatious, very outwardly visible manner, right? They would stand on the street corner and give very dramatic prayers that everybody could see them praying. This was especially true of the Pharisees, right? They liked to practice their religion, but in a very outwardly sacred and public way. That may very well have been the way they were doing this with John's baptism. Yes, yes, of course, we will go and be part of this revival that John is doing, and we will be baptized. Yes, John, you may baptize me now. I will submit to this and, you know, and do it in this ostentatious way that John could see their hearts. It wasn't true. It wasn't sincere. They, they were trying to show the world that they were ready for the Messiah, but they weren't. And so John reminded them that real repentance would show itself in the life. It has to be a matter of a living repentance, not, not just talking repentance. And so, they believed in the wrath to come, the Jewish people of that day. You know what's funny about it, though? Look how John uses the expression, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Doesn't that tell them that they are in danger of the wrath to come, right? Now, the Jews of that day definitely believed in the wrath to come, but who did they believe were the potential targets of the wrath to come? Good Jews like themselves? Oh, no. It was the Gentiles, right? And do you see what John's saying? Yeah, the wrath to come is a danger to you. And I could just see how those Pharisees and Sadducees would be very, very upset by that. You know, I think that there's a lot for us to learn from John the Baptist preaching. I just want you to consider that one line, flee from the wrath to come. Think of that phrase, flee from the wrath to come. What kind of wrath is that? Well, whose wrath is it? Is it the devil's wrath? Is it the world's wrath? No, the wrath John is talking about is the wrath of God, right? That's a heavy wrath to have coming down upon you. This wrath is also fair. It's well-deserved. Is God just being mean? Is he being unfair when he, when he imposes this wrath upon the world? No, not at all. And this fair, this wrath is often ignored or disregarded because it's not immediate. Notice what John said about the wrath. This wrath is what? It's to come. 
It's not immediate, but it's coming. And what is the tendency of men throughout all ages of history? Well, if the wrath isn't immediate, it's not real, right? If it's to come, I don't have to worry about it. No, he says, listen, it's wrath to come, but you better prepare for it now. That wrath is not any less certain because it's delayed and because it is to come and that it's not immediate. And that wrath is terrible when it comes because it's God's wrath. What's more, you cannot stand against the wrath. Do you understand that what John is saying here? He's not saying the wrath of God is coming. You, you better get your feet planted sure and stand against the wrath of God. He doesn't say that for a moment, right? What's his prescription? Flee! Get out of there! Run for your life! That is the only way you can survive the wrath of God is for you to flee from it and have it not touch you. You can only be rescued from the wrath. You can never survive it. It's like a great mighty wave, right? It's a wave from the ocean. And it's a wave so big that you can't hope to stand against it It is going to crush you. And so the only way you can be saved is to flee from it and get out of the distance of it. And that's a pretty heavy word there, flee. You know, flee implies immediate action, right? If you tell somebody, flee, flee. Yeah, okay, fine. You know, in a few minutes I'll flee. No. Uh, Flee also implies swift action, right? You do it right away. Not only do you do it immediately, but when you do it, you do it fast. And finally, flee implies straight movement. If you're fleeing from a burning building, you don't run all around the building, four or five laps around the building, and then finally make your way out. You look for the exit, and you take the shortest way out you can. Now, every time men and women hear of the wrath of God, they start imagining reasons why they don't have to be worried about it. And the reasons these people imagine that they don't have to worry about the wrath of God is because they would say, well, we have Abraham for our father. John told them, stop trusting in your Jewish heritage because you have to repent. You can't trust in Abraham's merits. It was widely taught in that day that Abraham's merits were plenty for any Jew's salvation and that any Jewish person couldn't go to hell. There were some rabbis that taught in John's day. They taught that Abraham stood at the gates of hell and he looked at every person who walked in the gates of hell just to make sure that none of his descendants actually or accidentally were going to walk into hell. Whoa, you belong to me. Don't you go in there. You go the other way. Go to heaven, right? And that's what Abraham did. John says, don't you dare trust in that. Because even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. It's an axe. It's not a pruning hook. It's not a pruning knife. This wrath isn't going to prune the tree. It's going to chop it down. So John said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But there's going to be a different one who comes with a different ministry altogether. Notice, he says, But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
John recognized here his own place before Jesus. He is one not worthy to carry the sandals of Jesus, and he didn't even consider himself uh, above those whom he called to repentance. John was not saying to the crowd, Oh, I'm so holy and you're so sinful. John was saying, I'm sinful too. I'm not worthy to untie the sandal of the Messiah. That's very interesting, the phrase that John uses here. Because it was a saying in that day. Well, let me backtrack a little bit. It was common for a rabbi to have disciples in that day. This idea of Jesus having his disciples who followed him all around that we're going to talk about in the coming chapters, that was not unusual. Nobody would have looked at Jesus and the disciples and said, what's that, a rabbi with followers following around? That's so strange. Nobody would have said that. Now, they probably would have looked at the group of men that followed Jesus and say, that's strange. Such weird guys following a rabbi. That's different. But the fact of a rabbi having disciples was nothing strange at all. And a disciple of a rabbi was virtually his slave. You know, the rabbi, well, I don't want to pick this up. I don't want to do this. Do this for me. Do that for me. He could virtually command his disciples to be his slaves. But there was a limit to it. They said, listen, a a, a rabbi can't humiliate his disciples. And one of the things that they said that a rabbi could not do or could not command his disciples to do because it was too humiliating was he could not command his disciples to untie his sandals. And what does John say? He goes, I'm not even worthy to do that. Why? Because as he says there, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, verse 11, and with fire. John warns them to prepare for the Messiah's coming because he's coming with judgment. He was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That was an aspect of the new covenant prophesied many times in the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to bring and with fire. I believe that to baptize with fire means to bring the fires of judgment, to to purify the pure, but it would destroy the wicked. It would destroy the wicked like what? Like chaff. That's what he says there, right there in verse 11, right? Or actually in verse 12, where he says, He will gather up his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Chaff is the worthless residue of a wheat stalk after the kernel of grain has been removed. You know what a wheat stalk looks like, right? And the actual kernel of grain is a very small part of the wheat stalk. All that's left over, all the stuff that's worthless, that's chaff. And that would just be swept up and burned up. That is what Jesus Christ came to purify. The worthless. The things that are just a distraction in our life. And again, this is what I want you to understand. The Jewish leaders thought that the Messiah would come with judgment but that he would come with judgment against Israel's enemies. They were blind in their self-righteous confidence that only other people needed to get right with God. Now, many people have the same idea today. I tell you, John the Baptist might be out of place in today's church, but that kind of ministry is needed. The kind of ministry that speaks to those of us who pretty much feel, yeah, other people need to get right with God, not really me. John the Baptist was having none of that. He challenged people to get right with God. Now, 
from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, we have this very exciting account of the baptism of Jesus. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. Can you just picture this in your mind? Thousands of people coming to John. They're streaming to him. They're repenting. It's true. It's a remarkable movement of God's Spirit. And what are all these people doing in their repentance? What are they all doing when they're baptizing and being baptized and confessing their sins? They're saying, I want to get ready for the Messiah. I believe you, John. I believe the Messiah is coming and I want to be ready for him. And then what happens one day while John's doing this work? The Messiah comes. Now, what was the relationship between Jesus and John? They were cousins. This was not the first time, surely, that John had ever met Jesus. Maybe they had not seen each other for a long time, but when Jesus comes to John, John knows who he is. This is Jesus. He sees him. He recognizes. And notice, where does Jesus come from? From Galilee. That's pretty powerful. Where did we leave Jesus in chapter 2? Nazareth, right? In Galilee in the region of Galilee, in the city of Nazareth. And we were so struck, or at least I was, I have to say, with the fact that Jesus would condescend to grow up in such a despised, hated, looked down upon town like Nazareth. And Jesus came from there. He came from Galilee, and he came now unto John, and basically he said, here I am, John. I'm here to be baptized by you. And what's John's immediate reaction? Well, his immediate reaction is, I need to be baptized by you. But notice, Jesus came, it says. Nobody compelled Jesus to be baptized. It's very interesting that there's some old and false traditions that Jesus was baptized because of pressure from his mother and his brothers. Now, Jesus, everybody else is getting right with God and being baptized. You better go out there and do it too. No, no, a thousand times no. Jesus didn't do this because of pressure or compulsion from anybody. He did it out of obedience. And John looks at him and says, wait a minute, Jesus, you should be baptizing me. I'm not going to baptize you. He recognized the irony in the situation. Jesus had nothing to repent of. And it would have been more appropriate for Jesus to baptize John. What did Jesus say? Look at verse 15. Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. Jesus understood why this seemed strange to John. John, I know this seems weird to you, but it's right. It's fitting. It's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Now, please don't think that this one act in itself fulfilled all righteousness. It's not like Jesus went under the water. He came back out. All righteousness is fulfilled. It's all over. It's all done. Don't have to go to the cross or anything like that. No, no, no. No, but it was another important step in the overall mission of Jesus. And part of the overall mission of Jesus was to identify with fallen and sinful man. And that's a mission that would only finally be fulfilled at the cross. But think about how this would look 
to an onlooker. There's Jesus, right? Everybody, I don't know if people were watching, I don't know if people were paying attention, but there were people all around. There's Jesus. He goes down into the water. John sees him and John goes, Jesus, I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. What are you doing? And Jesus says to John, John, listen, I know this seems strange, but permit it to be so for now. This is to fulfill all righteousness. And John says, okay, I'll do it. And he baptizes. Now, people see this conversation that Jesus has with John. And what do they think? They think, oh, isn't that sweet? He's confessing his sins. Jesus had no sin to confess. There was no sin to be washed of in baptism. And he goes under the water. And what are you thinking if you're looking at it from the banks of the River Jordan? You look and you go, oh, there's just another sinner being baptized. Hallelujah. Another one. That's number 1,242 for the day. Hallelujah. Don't you think that would make some misunderstandings? No, wait, wait, wait a minute. Jesus, shouldn't you clarify this more? Jesus standing in the waters just before his baptism. Hello, everybody, I'd like to make an announcement. I'm not a sinner. I have nothing to be cleansed of. I'm not confessing any sin, but I'm just doing this to identify with you poor, wretched sinners. So let's get this over. I just want to make this clear so nobody misunderstands, right? And then, he, no, he doesn't do any of that. It would be easy for any onlooker to think that Jesus was just another sinner being baptized. And so he completely identified with sinful man. I like what one commentator, Bruce, says about this. He says, Christ's baptism might create misunderstanding. Just as his association with publicans and sinners did, he was content to be misunderstood. Don't you find that remarkable at the ministry of Jesus? There's so many things about the ministry of Jesus that we would say, Jesus, don't do that. People might get the wrong impression. No. If it means me being identified with sinners who need salvation, I want to identify with them. Jesus submitted to this baptism. I like how it puts it there in verse 15. Then he allowed him. (laughs) Uh, All right. All right, John says, I'll allow you to be baptized. The purpose was for Jesus to completely identify himself with sinful man. This is exactly what he did in his birth. This is exactly what he did in his upbringing. This is exactly what he did in his life. This is exactly what he did in his death. So here, as John allowed him to be, Jesus stood in the place of sinful man. He didn't confess any of his own sins. There were none to confess but he was numbered with the transgressors. You could say that he bore the sins of many. But I want you to understand something else. You know, the Bible tells us that there is another sense to baptism. One obvious sense of baptism is the sense of just being cleansed from our sin, right? That's familiar. It's like a bath, right? You go in dirty, you wash, you come out cleaner, right? It's pretty obvious. And that's a biblical you know, aspect of baptism. But there's another aspect. It's found in the book of Romans, chapter 6. And it speaks of our baptism being our identification with the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, right? You die to your old life and you're raised again to your new life. I want you to think about that as it was fitting in the life of Jesus. You could say that very much Jesus, right then at his baptism, was making a dramatic 
break with his previous life because pretty much up to that point now by the way this wasn't the first thing jesus did in his ministry there was some ministry he did up to this point but pretty much jesus had just been an anonymous guy loving god serving him caring for his family working at his job but right now there was no turning back you could say in one sense this was death to the old life of Jesus. No more nameless hiding in a carpenter's shop in Nazareth. And I'm not saying there was anything wrong, that Jesus was doing something wrong by hiding. That's just where he was supposed to be. But those days are over. The, the days of you just being a wonderful, godly man in an obscure Galilean town, Jesus, those days are gone. And from now on, you have a completely different relationship to your mother, to your brothers, to your neighbors, your earthly callings different. Now you are devoting yourself in a unique way to the calling of God placed on your life. Wouldn't you say that in one dramatic way, with this baptism, everything changed for Jesus? He left an old life behind, and he began a new life. Now, please, there was nothing wrong or sinful about the old life, but it was time for it to be over. Now, the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah, begins on this earth. Verses 16 and 17. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, this was different, right? There wasn't anything different about Jesus' baptism before he did it. He didn't do any of that. Hello, may I have your attention? I'm doing this just for a ceremony. I don't really need to do this. None of that beforehand. But after the baptism, nobody else had this, right? People could think that he was just another guy being baptized up until the time he came out of the water. But when he came out of the water, nobody would have thought he was just another guy getting baptized. Because what happened? The heavens were opened. It was important for God the Father to publicly demonstrate that Jesus' baptism was not just like anyone else's. It was not just a display of repentance. It was not a display of repentance, but instead it was a righteous identification with sinners, motivated by love, and it was well-pleasing to the Father. And that's why God the Father said this. You think about it, Jesus didn't have to say this himself, right? God the Father said it for him. And then the Spirit of God descended like a dove and it alighted upon him. This was a dramatic experience with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God coming upon Jesus in a way that could actually be seen. We have... Something similar to this, do we not, in the book of Acts? The, the book of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost? The, the presence of the Holy Spirit among the disciples could be seen as if it was a tongue of fire up over their heads. I can't explain this. All I can say is that the Bible tells us that there are some unique times when the Spirit of God makes himself somewhat, in some way, visible. You could see 
something descending upon Jesus, and it says, and alighting upon him, resting upon him as if it... Now, it's very difficult to know what exactly it means. In some way, the Spirit was present, and it flew down on Jesus like a dove. But we don't know what it was. Was it an actual dove that came down? We don't think so. But it was something that if you saw it, you would say, man, that, that's moving like a dove. And it's coming upon Jesus and it's resting upon him. By the way, John the Baptist saw this phenomenon. He understood what it meant. And it was not a temporary gift of the Spirit of God. John the Baptist's testimony in John chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, he said that he saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him, upon Jesus. Jesus was about to begin his public ministry, and he would do it in the power of the Spirit of God. Now, not that Jesus had, was absent the Spirit of God before, but God wanted everybody to know. So he did something absolutely unique. The Spirit of God descended, and in a visible way came upon the Son of God. It's interesting that the only thing they could associate it with was a dove. Why a dove? Well, in some ways, you could say that a dove represents the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, like a dove, the work of the Holy Spirit can be swift, right? Fast. Like a dove, the work of the Holy Spirit can be soft and gentle. Like a dove, the work of the Holy Spirit brings peace. Like a dove, the work of the Holy Spirit is harmless. And like a dove, the work of the Holy Spirit speaks of love. It's not a bad picture. But don't miss the voice ending there at verse 17. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When the voice of God the Father spoke from heaven, everyone knew that Jesus was not just another man being baptized. They knew that Jesus was the perfect Son of God in whom I am well pleased. He was identifying with sinful man, but he was not a sinful man. Everybody knew that Jesus was different. I like how Luke records it in Luke chapter 3. He says that the heavens were opened as Jesus prayed. Luke likes to point that out a lot, that things happened in Jesus' life and ministry while he prayed. God the Father put his divine stamp of approval upon the Son. By the way, this shows us that Jesus' life up to that point had God's stamp of approval upon it, right? He's ready, God says. He's ready to begin it. He's the pure, sinless, spotless Son of God. I am well pleased in Him. Not, ah, He's a pretty good guy. I am well pleased in Him. Absolutely. Now, we can't leave this chapter and this study tonight without noticing. The Spirit of God descending the voice of the Father speaking, the Son being baptized. We should not miss the obvious point. God the Father loves God the Son. And He communicated that love by or through God the Holy Spirit. Here we see the love, relationship, and cooperation between the persons of the Trinity in one occasion when the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were all manifested at the same time. It's a marvelous thing. This demonstration of this love that existed before the world began between the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Well, he's ready to begin, right? And you would think that after this, Jesus goes out and, wow, it's going to be amazing. Well, it is going to be amazing, but maybe not in the way you think. And that's where we pick it up with chapter 4 next time. But you know, I, I think we just should leave ourselves with this reminding of repentance. It's a sorely needed word in the church, not just in this age, but always. And um, I don't think I'm done repenting. I don't think I'm done changing my mind and my actions to where they conform to God and his will. Um, Maybe that's you too. I want to hear the first word of the gospel from John, from Jesus, from the disciples, from Jesus commanding his disciples, from Peter, from Paul. I want to hear that message repent and respond to it the way that I should. Father, that is our prayer tonight. We pray that you would really help us to be your followers and to hear this first word of the gospel. Lord, show us what it means to repent. We want to live it. We want to present it that way to other people, Lord. When we're telling other people about how they can come to Jesus Christ, Lord, help us to never neglect the message of repentance. But, but Lord, let us just present it as the, the other side of the coin of belief, Lord. If we really believe in you, if we really trust in you and cling to you, Lord, we're going to leave our old ways. We don't want him anymore. We want you. Help us to understand and to see and to live this great principle of repentance. Give us the gift of repentance by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.